Welcome everyone to the Nerd Journey Podcast, episode number 124. We're joining you every week to talk IT career progression and bring you the advice we wish we'd been given earlier in our careers. I'm your host, Nick Cordy, at NetworkNerd underscore on Twitter, filling in for my normal co-host, John White, at VJourneyman. We are both pre-sales technical engineers with backgrounds in IT operations. We hope our career discussions will be vendor neutral, relevant across disciplines, and remain timeless. If you're enjoying our content, please drop us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe. And if you want to get in touch with us, tweet or DM at Nerd Journey. Ultimately, we're just two nerds on a journey. It's a virtual enlightenment. So let's take a trip. This week, we're going to share part two of our interview with Josh Duffney. If you missed last week and part one of the interview, go back and listen to it. In part one, Josh told us about his early career how he ended up progressing from a help desk person in IT all the way to DevOps engineer, and that took him through systems administration along the way, and how he consistently used the skills he learned in what he was doing on his own and what he was doing in his current position to get to that next position. He participated in different communities along the way, and that helped him out a great deal, and he even did some work as a content creator for Pluralsight. This week, we get into part two of the interview with Josh, and he tells us about what it was like to land his dream job at Stack Overflow. He had a goal for a number of years to work at Stack Overflow. He's going to share with us why it became a goal, what he did to get there, the things he liked about it and learned from it, and then he's going to share the story of how he left his predefined dream job for some new opportunity at Microsoft, which is what he does today in content creation. That was a challenging decision for him. Why would someone do that? He also shares with us what it was like to write a book. Brianna Blasse was our previous guest, and she talked about what it was like to be a writer. Josh wrote a very technical book. What was it like for him? How did he stay organized? How did he keep himself on track? And he'll also talk to us about the difference between a job and a career. Are they the same? Is there any overlap? I don't know. You'll have to find out. Here we go with part two of the interview with Josh Duffney. So I have to ask the question, I know you worked at Stack Overflow and you mentioned that it was your dream job and you worked for a guy named Tom Limoncelli, hopefully I said that right, who also wrote The Practice of System and Network Administration as well as Time Management for Systems Administrators. So when you work for a guy who wrote a book on time management for systems administrators, what is that like? Honestly, it was awesome. He, you know, like he just understood, he understood deep work, he understood that engineers need time, you know, like in, in very encouraging in those ways. One of the most impressive things was just watching him see still, you know, as the manager still in the command line, vimming around like a madman <laughs> was really impressive. It inspired me to pick it up. So I'm moderately competent in, in Vim now or Vi, however, however, you know, I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings <laughs> miss saying that. Um, but yeah, just seeing that is it was really awesome getting to work in that organization and seeing all these, like I no longer had to be, had to be the DevOps advocate. Like it was just built into the culture and built into the organization. You know, like I would, every Monday I would join a standup with the development team and I was like, what world, what world am I living in right now? Like 
I'm actually, I actually have a front seat and a voice into what's coming into the pipeline from a software. I understand the risk of this going out and being pushed out. I understand why I'm pushing out the software because I know what features are going to be pushed with this release. Where before, I mean, it would be like three years working in a company before I even knew the application's name, you know, just because they were so far detached. But yeah, working for Tom was was amazing. And I'm, I'm, I'm always just a little sad that my scent there was, was so short. Um, but yeah, I have nothing but the utmost respect for him and, and that just powerhouse of a team that they have there with Brandon Olin and Chris Hunt. Um, and then uh, Jamie is another one less known figure in the community, but just a amazing, amazing talent uh, at that company on that team. Now, had you been a contributor to Stack Overflow at any time before joining the company? Not, uh, yes, to a degree, but more, I mean, it's such a mature Q&A that there's like little room um, to contribute besides upvotes in some cases. Uh, that are what you would have would be so bleeding edge that, you know, very few people would actually benefit from it. So not a massive contributor. I mean, obviously, I used it all the time. Uh, but as far as being an active member in that community, I not so much. I think I have maybe 200 points on there right now. So not definitely not uh, what I got to at Spiceworks. I never got to, was it pure capsaicin? I never got to that level. Yeah. Hadn't made it there either. I don't know that I will, unfortunately. It seems like my contributions are less and less these days. You just you get busy or you get focused on other things sometimes. With a with a powerhouse group like that at Stack Overflow that you described, what would you say is the most important lesson you took away from working there? The people at the very top are still people. And they made that very clear. Like everybody on that team was super respectful, super humble super like wanting to hear your ideas no matter what your what your background is or what your solutions were i mean that we would have like nick craver would come pop in with his suggestions uh as well and then seeing that guy work on a on an incident was another just anomaly that was just amazing like i just super impressive i can't i'm almost speechless recalling that account yeah just remembering just knowing that even people at the very very top are still people and you know even they make mistakes and you make mistakes and not to hold them up on such a pedestal, not because they're not worthy of it, but because you can attain that as well, right? Um, I think was the biggest lesson that I learned there. And it kept me very humble in that sense. Yeah, that's a good lesson. I don't know if it was before Stack Overflow or during, you actually wrote a book on Ansible, right? Right before I joined, yeah. Okay. Now, what what is the motivation for someone in the tech industry to want to write a book? I mean, besides being nerd famous, I think we know that that's part of the plan here, Josh. Just teasing. My honest motivation at the time, I didn't have any other outlet. Pluralsight didn't have any uh, room in their catalog for, for Ansible content at the time. Just for, you know, stars didn't align. But I think in, a, in the they did so in a way that uh, was to my benefit. <laughs> but so I, that was my typical thing is like I just spent uh, so a little bit background story on that. I had spent kind of like two years disengaged. I had I ran into some health issues and then like I kind of just I recovered from them and I, I didn't get back in the community right away. I just kind of gave everything I had to my job. And so there was about a two year period where I was dark, you know, from a community standpoint. And so I Emerging from that, I had this wealth of knowledge um, bringing Ansible into a large organization, purely, you know, a Windows shop, I think, you know, 90 plus percent Windows machines bringing in Ansible had some struggles, you know, and we had some some hard learned battle lessons and there wasn't anything out on the market that captured this kind of onboarding experience that we had just gone through. And that was the motivation was uh, really to get this this knowledge out of my head into some kind of form. And I've always wanted to write a book, but I kept the experience of others, like the negative experience of others from from doing that, mainly because of publication. And 
so I listened to a fantastic podca- podcast, a writer on the side episode where this individual left Amazon, wrote his first book, you know, made 44K. I didn't make that, but it was super, super inspiring. And I was like, hey, what did he do? He self-published. I'll, I'll self-publish. And so that was the idea. And then also the motivation, you know, like I just kind of had stumbled on that, that particular journey. And then I, I publicly, the tendency that I have is sometimes it bites me. I publicly commit to things to hold me accountable. And that was one thing that I actually <laughs> fell through with. So did you have an idea of how many chapters you wanted or anything at the beginning when you made the decision? Did you have a rough outline or how did that process work? Yeah, before I committed, I had uh, in my bullet journal, I had like a page of an outline. So I had, I think I had like eight chapters that time, like at least at the the H1 level kind of figured out. And how much, how much time does one need to commit to doing something like this? Is it a, I need to work on this three hours a day, an hour a day? How do you, how do you keep yourself quote on track so that you actually do finish a book. I know that's a big deal. You begin with the, the end in mind, but you don't begin at the end. And so what I mean by that is I had, you know, kind of, um, I struggled a little bit in the beginning. I outlined the eight chapters. And then as I was writing, I would always try to append. And so what I ended up doing was outlining part one. I broke it into two parts. And so I outlined part one aggressively and I just started writing. The time commitment was one hour, one to three hours, just depending on how much I could squeeze in, you know, to the day. Typically, on average, I would say about an hour and a half. And so it took me around six months of that every single day. I wrote for, I think it was before I broke the streak, it was 246 days in a row, but it only took me six months to finish the book. So I continued writing after that. But yeah, but now, you know, an average of about an hour and a half a day for about six months. And I wrote 143 pages, to publish it. And after, at some point during that, you wrote your PowerShell script to back it up in 12 different places, right? I use Git, so I was pretty comfortable <laughs> that it was going to be, you know, retrievable. Nice. That's that's awesome, man. And did you enjoy the writing process because it was something that you kind of had a passion for or did it get old and you got tired of it? I'm just curious. I loved it and also wanted to cry many days. Uh, it's both. I mean, I mean, a lot of I won't ever compare it to, you know, like a a child or whatever else. But, you know, you have those two extremes, like the extreme frustration as a parent, but then also that like just completely like blissful love that you that you feel for the child. And like to a degree, it's those two extremes, you know, writing a book like sometimes, you know, like I remember when I got to page 20 or something like that, it finally imposter syndrome had left. Right. Like this was like I had a really good first couple chapters. The first part of the book was up. The pre-orders were up. You know, I got like $3,000 in sales of pre-orders. It blew my mind. Like that was like what I hoped to make from the book ever. And I made it in pre-sales. And so like at that point, I was just like on a high, you know, like everything was great. Uh, and then there would be, you know, days I think where I had, to, I had to sit down. Like I was just, I was one, I was running out of time that I gave myself and I was running out of energy and I was just super frustrated. And I decided, I was like, you know what? I need to cut these last two chapters that I had. Like they would actually make a great second book or beginning of a second book. And I need to, I need to do an MVP and a viable product here. And I had to make the hard choice to cut these, these chapters out. Uh, and then there were, day, there were days I would wake up at 445 and I would come and I'd sit in front of my computer and I would stare at a blank screen and I wouldn't type a single word because I didn't yet understand like how I was going to say what I was going to say or even what I was trying to say. And I just had to think through it. Um, but then just feeling completely unproductive because there were no words left on the, there were no words on the screen that I had, you know, 
visible pro- progress made that day. Now, are you are you the type of person who likes to say something in your mind, edit it down, and then type it out rather than go back and and edit after the fact, or is it a little bit of both? Uh, during the process of writing that book, uh, my writing process was singular, and what I mean by that is like uh, you know outlining to a great degree, writing, editing, and pr- like all that's a single pass. And so, if you can imagine, that's just torment. Uh, and so, I actually. What I'm doing right now is I'm trying to work on fracturing that out um, into different processes because they take different types of attention. And I, I realized going into a full-time writing gig, I can't write eight hours a day, like, you know, in that manner. But I can, if I can separate my writing process out into, you know, this more playful outlining to, and then writing a rough draft where I don't even have spell check on tip I got from Don Jones writing workshop and then have a different pass of editing like I can actually have multiple manuscripts going in different phases because it, they take different mental power um, to do that. And so what I'm working really hard is to figure out how I can separate my phases of writing so I can scale it more. Uh, but that is definitely not the way that I wrote my first book. That's a big accomplishment, man. And it's called Become Ansible, right? It is, yeah. Available on Amazon? Is that accurate? No, just uh, Lean Pub and Gumroad. So if you go to becomeansible.com, you'll be able to get the links. All right. If you want to learn about Ansible from somebody who's been there, go get Josh's book. My tagline is written by an engineer for engineers. It's like shoulder surfing a coworker. Do you think you'll end up publishing like a new edition in a couple of years once new versions of Ansible and other things come out? Yes, I do have uh, plans and I've started the outline process for 2.10. So I'll probably pick that up towards the end of the year to write and uh, release sometime next year an update. I want to ask about the role at Microsoft. So with you doing writing now full time, it must mean you like to write because you're still pursuing books in addition to that. What advice would you have for other people who might want to write a book to help them decide if it's really the right decision? You have to. So was this great advice a mentor of mine gave me is like you write the book for you. And so if it's the book that you wish would have existed, like I wish Become Ansible had existed when I first picked up Ansible and brought it into my organization, it would have saved a lot of pain. If that's the same drive that you have to create this thing, then you should pursue it. But if you're doing it for the hope of a, a quick buck or the hope of, of notoriety or any of those more vanity metric things, it's going to be torture. <laughs> and it's, you're going you're gonna to get some percent through and give up because there won't be this more intrinsic motivation pushing you to do it. And does putting that inside the tech industry automatically make it harder because things change relatively quickly? Yes. Yeah, so if you're if you're really focused on like bleeding edge technology, it's going to be even harder. Like Kubernetes is something that is you know really really it's popular, and so it makes sense because there's a lot of demand, but it's also very difficult because it releases so much. But there there is still some room if you're creative enough to create these more evergreen type things, um, which I kind of not not intentionally did with Become Ansible because it's really this like onboarding ramp of not everything you need to learn about Ansible, but like how would you actually bring it into an organization and use it in a team? And so like that has more shelf life than the versions. That's a good idea. Part of the creative juices that start to flow once you once you get into the habit. Yeah, the lens I would add, it's like make sure the problem the book is solving isn't just learning the technology, right? Like it's not just this reference manual. It is something more that teaches them a different set of skill. Like 
how are they going to use, how is using this technology going to benefit them? That's a really good way to think about it. Speaking of benefits, six months into Stack Overflow, you make a jump to Microsoft. I would love to hear the story about how this came to be. So when I joined uh, Stack, I released a blog post called Building a New Identity. And it was really kind of like my best attempt at distilling all the lessons I learned from, you know, like, so the year leading up to Stack, I decided I took Don's Be the Master workshop, decided I wanted to take back my career from that two years of being disengaged, for lack of a better word. And so it was really from um, that job being promoted to a dev, uh, DevOps lead and then getting the opportunity to join Stack. And then I did, you know, I passed a number of certifications that time. I joined CloudSkills as a contributor and wrote the book all in this little short window. And so it was my best attempt to distill all that. But in writing the book, I found this passion for writing that I didn't, that I, I, like looking back, I knew it was always there, but I didn't see it as a full-time gig. And and now it's, it became visible that I could make this more of a full-time thing. And I didn't know a capacity yet. I didn't know, you know, Microsoft was on the horizon. So I joined Stack and completely, you know, was absolutely my dream, dream job and had been for the prior seven years up to that point. Because I looked at, you know, it became my dream job as soon as Steve Murawski was an SRE there. Because that was right when I was getting in the DevOps space and learning about DSC, and that's what he was doing in, in the spaces. He became an MVP. Um, and so in that last article, I wrote a little snippet, you know, like, you know, that I wanted to build a new identity around being a writer. And so I just kind of put that out there. And six months into my tenure at Stack, Mike Robbins reached out to me and he just asked me some, you know, questions about Ansible and Terraform. And, I, you know, I showed that I was knowledgeable. And then he just replied back, do you want to be a writer? And so, you know, through networking and we've known each other for a while uh, in the community, the PowerShell community. And then so he said, there's a, you know, a position open that's in the spaces that you are an ex, you know, have expertise in that you just released your book in. Um, if you want to, you, you can apply. And so I kind of, you know, I didn't think too much of it. I'd applied for the same role a year, like a almost a year prior before I even applied at Stack. And Mike actually got that job, which he's a way better candidate for me in that space for Azure PowerShell. I don't think there's anyone better to have that role. So I didn't feel bad about it. I got beat by a better person. And so I can respect that. But then I kind of put it on my mind. And so this opportunity came back on the table. And I was like, you know, what's the worst thing that could happen, right? Like I can apply. The worst thing that happens is I have a really hard choice to make, right? And that actually happened. And so I had to sit down and that was... A very stressful, very uncomfortable decision to make where I had to weigh, like, I'm at exactly where I wanted to be for seven years. And here's this opportunity to go full time into writing and to pursue this and to, you know, kind of put my money where my mouth is. Like, am I willing to do that? And it was very, very hard, but I did end up choosing to do that. And that's how I uh, landed at where I am now at Microsoft, where I'm, you know, doing the the content development. And when that happens... When you make a jump like that into something, I guess it had to be a little bit more exciting than what you were doing because it was maybe a different, a little bit different path than you had thought of for yourself. Well, what was so different about it now that I've been there a couple months is I knew exactly what I should, you know, like I knew exactly what to do. I knew exactly, you know, how to, how to lead in the areas that I wanted to do. I knew how to leverage my expertise at, you know, at Stack and, um, and just being around those people, you know, like I'd never... I'd never been beat up in PRs before for PowerShell code. And then Brandon and Chris uh, schooled me <laughs> whenever I'd submit a, a PR. And so it was very, it was very humbling, but good. But I knew my outputs, like I knew how to be successful in that. And that's been my struggle as I started this new role. It's been slightly terrifying because I don't know 
like, what are my metrics of success? Like, is it just articles per month or like, how do I gauge my impact? And there's this whole new world where, you know, like you can, I've written blog posts and I've written online for my entire career, you know, last 10 years, but there's so much to writing. Like if you, once you learn just a little bit and you look at like the month of lunches, you realize like how much intentional instructional design is here to not remove obstacles from you, but to create a learning experience that guides you through them in the proper order and sequence. And so there's all this other stuff underneath the writing that makes writing really, really good. You know, there's a really good quote, I forget who said it. If you're a great writer, you've done such a great job in conveying your ideas and your messaging that the reader thinks that they could have done it. You know, like you've, you've eliminated all the barriers to knowledge getting into their brain. And so you've done it in such a way that they think that they could do it because it was just so easy. They just picked it up, you know, and that's when you know that you're a really, really great writer. Um, And so there's all these different things now that I'm learning. But I think the biggest struggle has been like, what are what are my outputs? You know, as an engineer, it's lines of codes, it's, you know, releases, it's bug fixes, it's card numbers move across a Kanban. I don't yet have those pinned down and it's it's driving me a little crazy in my engineering tendencies. But uh, overall, I've really enjoyed it. It's been a different different pace uh, of life for sure. It sounds like it flexes a little bit different muscle. It's so interesting because we, we've talked to a lot of different people. You know, they start to do something on the side that they really enjoy and then it becomes what they do every day in their career. So was there ever a fear when you were considering this? Oh, you know, what if I get into this and, and I don't like writing anymore because I'm doing it all the time and it's not just for fun? Yeah, I had that. Um, so that's definitely been a reality. And that was the, the big struggle with the decide not to decide that I talked about earlier was those things that I did on the side are now my full time job, <clears throat> you know, writing the blog posts, which even a plural site course, it all comes down to writing. If you write the scripts, it's a very similar creative process. And like, I just knew that I can't, like I could barely do that for eight hours a day for my G job. There's no way that I can tack on additional hours of that same output. And so I've had to think, like, what are these other outputs that I'm going to do that exercise kind of the same muscles, but in a different way? And that's where I've gravitated towards and I'm starting to create a vision for this nonfiction writing that I've been doing um, through a newsletter and through uh, a book that I'm writing, which exercises a lot of the same muscles, but it's it's a different area of interest. And so it um, it begins to fuel it. Whatever, like throughout my career, I've always had, throughout my you know decade in tech, I've had this three-pronged approach to whatever I pick up where it has to benefit me, uh, you know, professionally, uh, personally, and creatively. And so that's what I've been focusing on this uh, nonfiction writing because it's more around, I don't even have like a genre for it at the moment, but it's all these like meta things that I've done that I do around productivity and learning and mindfulness and digital minimalism that allow me to do these things, you know, that give me the space and that give me the energy um, and the creativity to continue to have you know, not only a full-time gig, but a family and a creative outlet. Like how, you know, how is it that I'm maintaining this or how am I continuing to? Because it's, you know, it's not all sun, sunshine and rainbows. It's very difficult. Well, you seem like a happy guy. I just figured it was. I am most days, (laughs) you know, until I get a little too obsessed and I can't let go of a problem. And that's where the digital minimalism has come into play is to help me pull back from that. But I call it my uh, glass hamster wheel of productivity. Is the the glass... Uh, half full or half empty? Oh, no, it's a hamster wheel that's made of glass, so it's very fragile. <laughs> but it's always half full, right? Always half full, yeah. I think a lot of us could probably benefit from a little more structure for that deep work style of 
process that you're that you're talking about and different things to help fuel our own creative processes so that we don't get quite so distracted because I you know I've read some of your blog posts and I'm like yeah need to focus more. That that sounds like something I need to be working on. I'm guessing there are a lot of people who would benefit from changing things up just a little bit in their day-to-day of of how they approach it and order of tasks, focus time, things like that. Is there a, a good way to start off small down that path that you might recommend? Yeah, the biggest thing um, would be to start limiting your cell phone. You know, like for me, like I just had to make the decision. Like I already look at the screen like two hours in the morning, most days of you like my own agenda is what I call it. You know, whatever creative thing I want to do. Then I've got a full eight hour work day. I don't need any more hours. Uh, And so, but it's been hard. I mean, this has been like a three year journey, but just, you know, this month I got rid of my, or just last month I got rid of my smartphone and I got a light phone, which is a dumb phone. See here. So I like I just to get rid of that because just having the ability was enough to pull me away from being present and mindful. The best thing that you could do is just to start to limit that. Try to get yourself to an hour or forty five minutes. Remove email and remove instant messaging. That connectivity, like allow yourself some breathing room just to get some space and slack in the day. Like you know, uh, the thing that I've been trying to write recently is like where have the moments gone? Like. Back in high school, in in my childhood, I just remember all these blissful hours of boredom where I would just stare over a cornfield and I'd wa- I literally had so much time I would just watch a slow cloud like pass over the top of a cl- of a cornfield, you know, and just remembering like that blissful boredom where I was unhurried and you know just just unhurried and unhindered by productivity or responsibility and trying to find those moments because they will ultimately restore you and make you even better you know, not less better because you're not connected and they're, they're needed. Um, and the cell phone is definitely the number one thing for me, but to get a full picture of how much different it could be, I would definitely recommend to anyone doing, to do like a 30 day fast of technology, you know, whether you do the full on digital declutter that Cal Newport recommends where you, you know, basically after your work hours, you just, you don't use technology to, you know, maybe just social media, no social media for 30 days. Um, that'll be a lot of the topics of some of my future writing because that's stuff that I'm experimenting. I have, I'm doing a 30-day respond on Friday trial. So like throughout the week, I'll still use uh, other services to post to Twitter, but I won't ever read any of it. Like I won't check daily. So only on Friday from noon to 4.30 p.m. Central will I allow myself on social media. And I'm doing that for a month. But in the past, I've done you know, 30 days with just, I've done the full digital declutter. And then I've also done 30 days with just no social media. Um, but you'll, you'll be amazed at like how much more peaceful, calm, um, and relaxed you'll be just if you can unplug for a little bit. Yeah. There's something to that about taking things out of what might be the normal daily grind, moving them away, gives you the breathing room. It reminds me of picking a Verbo or an Airbnb a couple hours away from your house, right? It doesn't have to be real far. You go out there, it's a different area. Maybe it's in an area where there's not a lot to do and not a, not a lot of sightseeing. So you're in this place. It's different from your house. It doesn't have the the stuff that's all yours. It's It's probably not too cluttered because they have to keep it looking nice. And it's like time just sort of slows down. You're out of your normal work from home office. You know, your spouse is out of their normal work from home and time just goes slower and your brain works different. I 100% agree with you on that one. Now, you've written quite a bit about uh, in the Building the New Identity blog, you, you mentioned the difference between job and career. Can you share a little bit about what what your thoughts are there? 
Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, your, your job is obviously the thing that you do from eight to 10, but your career is what's always progressing. Uh, and there has to be a clear distinction between those two because the career is what's always going to ensure you have a job, right? But it's also, for me, for a number of years, it was also my creative outlet. It was the articles that I wrote for Spiceworks. It was the blog posts that I wrote. It was the Pluralsight courses. And they ultimately became my resume. And so the big difference there is that you you can't let your employer be your success coach in defining what it is that you learn and do. Like you always need to have a pulse on the industry and a path forward. Um, also, like that'll keep your daily learning life. It's very easy to get sucked into the day to day and just to do what's needed of you in your job. But eventually that will weigh you down. It'll just wear you out. And having this creative outlet, I noticed once I picked that back up, I would bring these learnings into my team and I would revitalize my team. You know, like we would have these horrible on call weeks where we get, I think I got second place with 57 pages in a week and one of my coworkers got 68 pages in a week. And so, I mean, like that's just an insane volume. We had a lot of infrastructure issues that we worked for, like work through. But in that time, I was still able to outside, like learn about Azure and figure out some new ways to use Ansible. And I'd bring those learnings in the team and it would bring just like a little beacon of hope back into the team and be like, oh, look, we can delegate this through, you know, using Tower in this way and this way. And so just having those constant ideas would would lift the team up. And so that's what's always been, and I've lost sight of this. So I have another post called You're an Engineer, Be an Engineer. And it's about when I lost sight of my career. And so that would be a great post that I would recommend if, if that feels like where you're at, where you don't have a good pulse of what that is, like how to kickstart that process back up. But it's really this outside thing to keep you passionate about your job, but also the industry that you work in, because it's going to be your meal ticket for the next job. And then you reinvent the career. It's not the static thing that you have. And this little bit of extra work, even though, you know, it's not exactly what you do day to day, but it's in an area of interest. And that just seems to reignite the excitement. Mm -hmm. I, I'm with you, you know, obviously we both podcast, uh, is, is podcasting part of your like your day-to-day -day job or is that something that you took on in addition to? It's on the side. And so I have lots of questions for you. Gotcha. I probably won't be able to answer that many, but uh, I've learned a lot from the John White School of Mentoring. Pretty cool. Happy to help there. You mentioned that you've done a lot of thinking on, okay, where do I want to be in 10 years when I'm 40? So can you describe that process a little bit for us, Josh? Is it more of a, okay, I'm writing down what I think I want to do, or I'm writing down what I really like and don't like now? How does that process work in your mind to flesh out a good goal that's that far away or even a short-term goal? It is, uh, I tend to front load a lot of mental thrashing <laughs> is what I do. And so uh, the tactics that I use Usually when my mind gets too overwhelmed, what I do is I take a mental inventory and what I do is I just take a sheet of paper and I, I write down in three columns, this is from the bullet journal uh, method, doing, should do, and like want to do, like basically next, uh, now, next, um, later type methodology. And I just list out everything that's in my head and so it gives me a good just mental dump. Uh, but as far as like looking to the future, I use my interest and, and the pattern of what, what fuels me. So there's this pattern that I've had where it's learn, understand, and then teach and share, which is kind of like the cyclical process that goes through, which is matches right up with writing, right? Any kind of writing, you have to understand it to write it and then you share it and then you teach it and you understand it even better. Um, but to go through that process, sometimes it's just sitting, I have a couch behind me for those that can't see. And it's just sitting there thinking, like I'll, I'll, allowing myself 
the time like to seemingly waste time by thinking through these situations to figure out what it is that I want. And, and in this particular instance, I'll use the newsletter as an example just to give some concreteness to it. So I've had this idea of this nonfiction writing before I wrote the Become Ansible book. Um, and I wanted to write that first. I wanted to write some kind of book around deep work or, you know, digital minimalism and stuff. And those are both books that just Cal Newport straight up wrote. So I couldn't obviously re- just rewrite his books. And so I really struggled with this. And so in the meantime, I thought, you know, like all these great writers, they have a newsletter. And so typically what I'll do is, I'll try to find what the immediate actionable step is for that. So if these great writers that write nonfiction books, they all have newsletters, maybe I should start one. And so what I did was I I started a newsletter and I've started and failed seven different newsletters and different variants. And what I've done in those different variants is I've, I've done what you just said is like, okay, well this, like something isn't right here. I use my, like the resistance as a compass, but I also use it as a feedback mechanism. So like the very first one was, um, like Tuesday's thoughts, I think is what I called it. And I just, I didn't know what to do at all. So I just kind of wrote whatever I felt like every Tuesday. And I think I ran out of gas of that in like three weeks because it was just too long. It took too much time. I didn't know what I needed to write. And so I ended up um, shutting that down, even though I got um, some good responses. It just wasn't right. And so I started another one called, I was like, this is, it's a little bit too like career focused. I want it to be more about the deep work and stuff. And so I thought of this like brilliant title called The Four Hour Engineer, heavily influenced by the Four Hour Work Week and stuff by Tim Ferriss. Because I wanted to convey that, you know, like in four hours of work, you can really get done all your engineering. It was the primary message. But then that was, you know, reviewing that, it was like just too narrow, it was too focused. Like it didn't allow me to talk about anything other than focus. And so I, I ditched that one. Um, and I'll fast forward. And now I'm on this uh, newsletter that, I, that I'm calling The Knowledge Worker. And I've left off really the qualifiers, right? And I've just started to write on a weekly basis what I call what I, I think I originally called the one, 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 which is one reflection, one quote and one action. And my goal is to give you something of value that I'm thinking about or struggling with on a weekly basis uh, in 300 words or less. And that's been really successful. And then I, I just I leaned into that more. And what I found was I started to write up this broad spectrum that I've always wanted to. And I started writing about like how to take smart notes and basically just using it as a way to write about what I'm learning so that I understand it. And it goes full circle back to Spiceworks, where what made me successful there was writing about what I was doing so I better understood it that added value to people. And I just need to take that same lesson and plant it in this other world of nonfiction versus the technical. But I guess if I were to distill a lesson, what I do is I, I try to think out what I want to do, which is this big North Star being a writer. I deduct all the way down to like, what is what I could do now to start this journey? You know, I look at the people that were successful. I saw they had newsletters. They say their newsletters is how they got publishing, you know, publishers to look at them. And so I just said, okay, this is what I need to start doing. And I just start iterating constantly until it fi- finds something that I can sustain. Uh, and then whenever I find, now that I found something that I can sustain, my next step is to optimize it so it becomes as frictionless as possible. And are there any recommendations there for people who maybe don't know what they want to do next? There, so depending on where you are in your career, I definitely recommend uh, Don's, it's in its final naming convention now called Own Your Tech Career. It's by Manning. That'll give you a really great framework. You know, what I really loved about that book is it didn't give me any answers. It gave me the right questions to ask myself. So I would, I would have some kind of framework to think about your trajectory of your career. That book's a great one, especially for the people in our space and tech because it's geared towards you. There's other more broader ones like The One Thing is a really great book. It takes a little bit more creativity to deduct how that applies to you because it's written so generically. 
where Don's book is a very you know specific to people in tech. So get this framework for thinking through how you would define your success. But then the biggest thing that you can do is to be patient and give yourself time. Like this, what you what you've seen me accomplish in the last two years has been constant iteration. You know, like it was. I identified what I wanted. I went and got it, and then as soon as I did that, I, I iterated again. And it it does it takes its toll. I mean, it's it's definitely stressful. There's been some months where I'm just you know completely frustrated because I can't figure it out. But it's always been when I relaxed and you know kind of let it come to me, so to speak, that it comes. Uh, it just kind of pops in your mind and it kind of crystallizes and takes form. So what I would recommend is find some book or resource that helps you to think through decision making that gives you a framework for making decisions, and then give yourself the freedom. To think, to think through what it was, you know, like when I did that, what surfaced for me was um, what I really enjoyed, like follow your interest and enjoy what you figure out, like basically give yourself enough room to figure out what interests you and start leaning into that and seeing how far it takes you. But in, but in a way that is relaxed, like it has to be playful almost like that's a delicate balance when you find it, you can't overburden it too much because then it just kind of burns it out. Right. If you put too much pressure on yourself, it's going to feel like work. Yeah. And I mean, I guess in a roundabout way, it is kind of work, but it's only when we relax can we let our mind work the best. Uh, there's a great line by Naval Ravikant, which is, you know, um, find work that feels like play. Yeah, 100%. That sounds like sounds like Jack and Susie Welch's book. Now, now the name is escaping me. Practical MBA or something like that. Anyway, this has been a fantastic conversation, Josh. I want to end with one uh, last question. Best and worst career advice you've ever received? The best, but also the most frustrating has always been stay the course in some way, shape or form. You know, keep doing what you're doing. Younger and even now, um, I want to know what I'm doing wrong or I want to know what I'm doing right, you know, more or less. And and more often what I'm doing wrong that I should stop doing. Uh, But I've realized there's a lot of wisdom in that. What they're saying is like, just keep going on your trajectory. You're You're headed in a great direction you don't need to change anything and, you know, kind of find some relief in that would be my advice there. The worst advice, I think I've been blessed that I haven't had a ton of, well, maybe I guess it's, you know, to abstract out a little bit would be, you know, like don't write a book, like be very careful about the bleed over of other people's experiences on what you want to do. So, you know, extract that out from a book to anything, a course or to apply for a job, you know, don't, that would be the, like, I think the, the worst advice that I've gotten is just these bleed over things or discouragement from other people because they had a horrible experience. It's not going to, it doesn't mean that it's going to be your experience. Um, and so what I would encourage you to do in those situations is find, you know, like, you know, I wouldn't jump right into signing up and, and writing a book for a publisher, but maybe do a self-published book or if that seems too daunting, do a blog post or a blog post series to test it. So find out what that minimum, um, like that smallest experiment that you can do in that space to validate whether it's worth you doing and not just take the word wholesale. Right. Go find out. Yeah. I love it. If anybody listening wants to follow up, is it okay if they contact you on LinkedIn, Twitter? Absolutely. Okay, cool. Well, Josh Duffney, what an amazing conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. It's been an honor. Thanks for having me. You bet.
Have you ever invested in a creative outlet that gave you energy, even when times were tough in your normal day-to-day job and you felt like you might not have had the time? It's exactly what Josh did. This consistent commitment to learning through creative outlets is what kept him energized and, I think, protected him from burnout in the tough times. We found out that once he became a writer, a content developer for Microsoft, he actually had to change his creative outlet a little bit. Instead of writing about technical things on the side, he has a nonfiction project that he shared a lot about, and it's going to be coming to us in the form of another book called Reclaim. You can actually pre-order that right now. We'll put the link in the show notes. I'm excited to read that one when it comes out because I think there'll be a lot of good info in there. When we're thinking about career, it's not just a job. Your employer shouldn't be your success coach. You do have to figure out how you're going to define success, but you need to be patient with yourself in hashing that out. It's not something you're going to be able to just get in 30 minutes of thinking about it. You need some time. You need to be patient, and you need to give yourself some room to determine what your interests are. Once you find a particular interest, look into it. Play around with it. Do something with it in a creative way, something that's not stressful, that doesn't put pressure on you, and hopefully it gives you that energy that helps you sustain and create new ideas and new work that you can put on your resume, much like Josh did. And I mentioned before that he's a very high-output individual. Maybe you're wondering, okay, what does this guy eat for breakfast? Is he into energy drinks? What's going on? How does he do that? Well, I kind of wondered the same thing, but as you probably heard, he did a lot of digital decluttering, keeping himself from playing around on his cell phone too much, and he invested that time in something called deep work, making sure you're on task without interruptions so you can do that work that requires the hard thinking, becoming more mindful of what you're doing, not only in what you're working on for a creative outlet or work, but even in everyday life, family time, social interaction with others. I actually read Deep Work by Cal Newport, and a lot of the principles are right in line with what Josh mentioned. That's a great read if you haven't checked it out. It makes you think. Maybe we all need to protect our focus time a little bit more, and that's not so different from what Tom Lumincelli wrote in Time Management for Systems Administrators. I liked the way Josh consistently iterates, and he iterates in such a way that it just adds value. That was kind of his mission statement from the first part of our interview. He likes to make sure that the things he's doing add value and make some sort of impact. And when they're not, he's willing to change it so that it does add value to other people and to himself. And one more time, I want to say a big thank you to Kelly Schrader for making the recommendation that we have Josh on the show. Once I started following Josh and seeing all the great things he was doing, the content he was producing, certainly I wanted to talk to him and figure out how he did it. I think we answered some of those questions, but I think we also answered the question of how you might be able to follow on in the same path. So if you're out there and maybe you don't want to be on the show, but you have an idea for a guest or a topic we need to cover, make sure and let us know. Hit us up at Nerd Journey or DM myself or John, and we'll be happy to explore that with you. Just a reminder, we want people to subscribe and give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. We want to know if we're being helpful and are always looking for interesting questions to ponder. We actually want to know if we're just adding value. We're collectively on Twitter at Nerd Journey. Farewell, listeners. Tune in next time as the journey continues. I'm Nick Cordy at Network Nerd underscore, flying solo for now. From my buddy John White at V Journeyman, signing off.